0: Chains and whips, long days, long nights. That was their life. Ripped backs, blisters on their hands, swollen feet, unruly leaders, generation after generation after generation on that hot Middle Eastern sun. Their skin torched, their spirits diminished, And there they would look up to heaven. They would seek God. They would cry out. Their tears would hit that dry ground. They had asked the Lord to deliver them. And generation and generation and generation would pass before the Lord God of heaven would heed their call. And there would come a day when Aaron's rod would be lifted up and it would smack the Nile River And that water and the food source to all of Egypt, the water turned into blood. And the stench began to fill the land. And the fish and sea creatures began to die. Let my people go. But Pharaoh refused. And so Aaron's rod was lifted up again. And again, it came down. This time, from every water hole in Egypt, out came frogs. Frogs everywhere, in the food, in the house, on the ground, in the laundry room, in every part of the Egyptian's life, frogs came everywhere. Let my people go. But there was no repentance. And so Moses would take some gravel and throw it into the air. And the third plague was upon Egypt. As now there was lice that filled the entire land. Upon every man, woman, and child of Egypt, and across all the beasts of the field, lice began to saturate and consume the people. And the only relief was for them to shave themselves. Let my people go. But Pharaoh refused. And so God brought plague number four. And flies replaced the lice. And there were flies on all the food. There were flies on all the water. There were flies on every part of the human body. Let my people go. And when there was no repentance, the next day came. And the Egyptians woke up to their fields. And there they witnessed their horses and their donkeys and their camels and their sheep and their goat. Many of them sick. Many of them flopped over dead. And the stench of dying hot flesh began to fill the land. Let my people go. But Pharaoh hardened his heart again. And so God brought the next plague. As they woke up the following day and they began to look on their bodies, boils like many mountain ranges filled their skin. Pus oozing from their body. And every crevice, every time they stepped and moved, the pain of those sores was felt. Let my people go. Then, on the next day, a storm like had never been witnessed in all of Egypt. The sky turned black. The clouds menacing. Fire being hurled from heaven down to the ground. Hailstones the size of basketballs began to pummel every part of the Egyptians' life from their fields to the structures that the Hebrews had built to their cattle and to their land and trees. It was all brought low. Let my people go. And he refused. And the sun began to shine again, but there off in the distance... There was a black ball coming towards them. They thought maybe it was another storm, but they were wrong. As it came closer, they heard a buzzing sound, and it grew louder and louder, echoing from Pharaoh's chambers all the way down to the servant's household. And they realized that it was locusts, swarms, billions upon billions of locusts blotting out the sun, turning the place black, eating all of their food, consuming every part of their life that was good. Let my people go. And Pharaoh said, get out of here. I will not. And so on the next day, a black fog set in, much like the same darkness that fell when Christ was on the cross for three days and three nights. The the damnation of pitch blackness came across the entire land. It was so eerie, it shook even the soul of the Egyptian men. And there they sat in darkness and in complete quiet for three days and three nights, let my people go. And the heart was hardened again, and now God brings the coup de grace, the final blow, the death blow to the Egyptians. As on that night, that special night, God allows an angel of death. He gives that angel permission to pass over the land of Egypt. And on that night, just like many of us, we kiss our kids goodbye or good night and we tuck them into bed and we kiss them on the forehead and we stroke their hair and we clean them and we get them prepared for a good night's sleep. Just like the Egyptians love their children, so too we love our children. And they put their kids to bed only to wake up that night in the wee hours of the morning to see their little ones, their firstborn, both of people and cattle dead. The screams and the horrific cries of the parents as they hold their little limp babies dead in their arms, God says, let my people go. And finally, Pharaoh says, yes, I will let them go. Only when it came to the Hebrews in the land of Goshen, there was not one child who was murdered. And we read the reason for that is because God said, I want you to take a lamb and I want you to slay it. And I want you to take the blood. Now in Egypt, they had what's called a sap. It was a, a hole right in the front of the door that they would fill with water. And they can put their feet in it to wash their feet. And then they can walk into the house with clean feet. I want you to take that blood of the lamb. And I want you to then put it on the top of the doorpost. And on each of the sides of the door. And I, whoever house has the blood of the lamb appropriated to it, the angel of death will pass over. And I want you to take bitter herbs, symbolic of the slavery and the hardship you had in Egypt. And I want you to take unleavened bread, symbolic of a new life without sin. And I want you to have a dinner. And we're going to call this the Passover. And you will remember how the Lord your God delivered your people from bondage. And you will remember how the blood of the Lamb has saved you from death and from damnation. And I want you to observe that until the day I come. And so for thousands of years, the Jewish people have observed that. Until our text today, when we see the Lord Jesus Christ there in the upper room holding the Passover dinner. And he says, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this is my blood. uh, Shed, there you go, spared. Shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me, a new covenant in my blood. You see, We are Judeo-Christians, meaning the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. And the things we do in the New Testament is built upon that of the Old. And Passover was the foundation on which we get communion from. And so turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to take verses 27 through 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 34. And we've now been three weeks in this area of communion, and we're going to wrap it up this week. So verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself... And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged... We are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that he will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So let's start back at verse 27 and we'll take it there. The very first word in verse 27 is what? Therefore, so if Randy and Bertie were here, I'd ask them, but I'll ask the rest of the church. When we see the word therefore, what do we do as Bible students? What is it it therefore? And so therefore always ties the previous thought. And so the previous thought is communion. And uh, Paul tells us about the Lord's supper. And he tells us about the body and about the blood. And we looked at that last week. But we have to review it because it's so profound, he builds the area of judgment on the back of that text. So last week, we saw two things. If you remember, the process of communion and the purpose of communion. So for you who were here last week, we saw the process and we looked at the Sadar dinner. And that was back in Exodus, that first Passover meal that the Jews continue to hold to this day. And sedar means the order. And it's a dinner of order because each one of these elements of the dinner points to a specific person. Anybody know that person? Jesus Christ, right? History is his story. And the sedar points to the person of Jesus Christ. And it first starts with the very first step of the sedar dinner, and that's the, the sanctification prayer. The, the gentleman or the, the leader of the home, typically the father of the home, stands up and he takes a cup. And it's always filled with red wine. And it's always red wine because that's symbolic of what? the blood of the lamb right the jews didn't believe in jesus or jesus hadn't come at that point so the sadar was the blood of the passover lamb that was shed the gentleman would pray over it and then he would take a mouthful of wine and then he would pass it to the rest of the people at the table anybody know what other institution does that the Roman Catholic Church adopted that from the sedar dinner. That's why you have one cup where everybody partakes of the same one of red wine. They got it from the sedar. They got it from the Jews. So everybody would take that sip. Then the second step was purification. There would be a water jug, holy water, separated water. Anybody know another institution that has holy water? The Roman Catholic Church, they got that from the sedar. And so they would wash their hands there at the sedar. Step number three was the Kapur. They would take vegetables like lettuce or parsley, symbolic of life, and they would dip it in salt water. And the salt water represented their tears that were shed as they were slaves for 400 years. Then we get to the next step, and this is the step of the bread. Think of three big crackers. And the Jews lay out three. One, two, three. And they take the second cracker, and they break the second cracker. And they wrap one piece in fine linen, and they hide it. And the other piece they put back into the pile. This is the part where Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. Why three? The Jews don't know, but we as Christians do. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The sun was broken for us. The other pieces wrapped in fine linen and hidden away till the end of the dinner. After that, you have story time. Just like what we did about five minutes ago, they go through all the plagues and they talk about God's judgment. And here the second cup of wine is poured out. Anybody know what that cup is called? Or the cup of judgment. This is the cup when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane he says Lord let this cup pass from me. He's talking about the cup of judgment which meant for Jesus the cross. Let the cross and your wrath and your indignation please pass from me. Nevertheless let your will be done. Then dinner is served. After dinner they have a time of dessert. And here the kids are looking throughout all the house, trying to find that cracker that's broken, the body of Christ wrapped in fine linen. The person that finds it brings it back to the table, either symbolic of resurrection or symbolic of the second coming of Christ. And then that child is given a gift. And then the very last step is the halal, which means praise. When we say hallelujah, it means praise the Lord. And the Halel is the last cup of wine called the Kingdom Cup, where they celebrate the coming of the King. And they read from Psalm 115 to 118. Now, 118 talks about the stone which the builders rejected. It talks about the triumphal entry. It talks about the Passover lamb who's going to be sacrificed. And then because of that, it talks about the everlasting peace that God brings to his people. Everything points to Jesus Christ. That's the process on which communion was established. Then Jesus now takes us to the purpose. And he says, get rid of all of those elements except for two. So what are the two elements that we have at communion? The bread and the cup, right? The body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we looked at five things last week, why communion is important or the purpose of communion. Number one, it's theological. What does the bread represent? His body. Whose body? And who's Jesus? He's our high priest. He was a man, and he was also God. So what does the body represent? God in the And the flesh, it speaks of his incarnation, that God became a man that it's called the hypostatic union. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. The blood symbolizes what? The blood of Christ. And what does the blood of Christ do for us? It's the atonement for our sin. So when we take the two elements, we are proclaiming Jesus is fully God, became a man, lived the perfect life, and he died, was sacrificed, buried, resurrected, and he then atones for our sin. All of that is theologically consumed into the act of communion. Number two, it is deeply practical. Jesus says twice in our passage, remember me. And we look. last week, it doesn't mean of mind only. We think of remembrance and we go down memory lane, we recall, you know, an event, and then what happens when our phone rings? We completely forget. Remembering is the Hebrew way of remembering, which means you bring that thought to present day and you act on it. So remembering Christ means imitating him, living for him, obeying him, as you recall what he has done for you And you do this every day of your life. So it is theological. It is practical. Number three, it's relational. Communion, we not only commune with Jesus. Who else do we commune with? With God and with whom? We take communion together. So who are we communing with? Each other. And we saw last week in chapter 10 that although we are many, and if you can look around, there's different skin tones, different genders, different ages, different economic status. We're all different with different experiences, but at the time of communion, we are united as one. We are, it is a deeply relational thing. Number four, it is evangelical. When unbelievers who come into the church see that there is no division and that the world is divided and the world is at at war with one another and Democrats and Republicans hate each other and all this nonsense and they come into the church and they see a people united, same mind, same passion, same desire, doing the exact same thing. There is a testimony of evangelism and then it is eschatological. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me until I return, And so we believe that Jesus didn't die and is never coming back, but that he died, ascended, and he will again descend upon the earth in his second coming. Now you see how profound communion is? This is why Paul says, now going to our text in verse 27, therefore, based on what it represents and what it means and the practical applications of it, therefore, whoever eats the bread... And drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So we looked at the process, the purpose, and now this morning we are going to look at the preparation of communion. We need to prepare our hearts. We need to get our minds right. We need to get our souls right. We need to get our body right when we come to the Lord's table. Why is that so important? Look at the warning in verse 27. What happens when you take the communion in an unworthy manner? You shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. Now, the word guilty means liable. You're on the hook. There's a liability when you go before the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And we'll look at what that means later down in the passage. But first, we need to define unworthy manner. What do you think it means to take communion in an unworthy manner? Okay, I like that. Sinful heart. heart. All right, we got two of the three. Okay. I think we, I think we understand. So there's three things that I found in the scripture that deal with an unworthy manner when we come to the Lord. And the first one is having a disharmonious manner, which means not being unified, not being one, not being completely on the same page with one another. Now, the church above every other institution on God's green earth is to be united. And that's a testimony to the world that we have the truth. Unfortunately, the church is so dysfunctional that we don't have that testimony like we ought to. So if we can't do the whole church universal on the same page, what we can do is each congregation be on the same page. So for like here at Journey, we are called to be harmonious in every single way. Now, Greg, what was the sin of the Corinthian church? They were divided. That's the whole purpose he writes this entire letter to the Corinthians. Because they were absolutely divided. And they were in-house fighting with one another. So Paul has to write the letter. And that is completely absurd because the church is called to be one. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. I may have this. Yeah. We're going to go through all of those. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren by the name of our lord jesus christ that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment and look at verse 11 the corinthians error for i have been informed concerning you my brethren by chloe's people that there is quar- that there are quarrels among you so the church is called to be united and the church at Corinth was divided. Now look to next week's passage in first Corinthians chapter 12 and verse four. Now we move into a new section of spiritual gifts. There are many gifts in the body of Christ. God has called offices and different roles within the body of Christ, but there is only one spirit. There's only one Lord. There's only one God. So although we are different, we use our gifts to build each other up and to be united. Look at verse 4. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 4. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of ministries, and the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Do you guys see the Trinity there in verse 4, 5, and 6? Verse 4 is what person of the Trinity? The Holy Spirit. Verse 5 is what person of the Trinity? Jesus Christ. And verse 6 is what person of the Trinity? God the Father. Now look at verse 11 through 13. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves are free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. Can you see the unity within the body? Now look at the early church. Flip over to Acts chapter four. People say, oh, I want to live like the early church. I want to be like the early church. It all is surrounded by this idea of unity. Acts chapter four, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Now, some believe that's socialism. That's not socialism. That's the Holy Spirit working within the lives of the believers, so there's no fleshly desires. I can willingly give up all that I have so that my brother can eat and that my brother can live and my brother can have and share what I have. It's, again, the idea of unity within the body. Now look at Acts 2, verse 41 through 47. Hopefully we're getting the picture of the early church. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls, and they were continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and two prayers. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all who had believed were together, and all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now there's a term there, it says breaking of bread. It said it in verse 42 and then it says it down low. When they were breaking bread, sharing meals house to house. What was that? That was what was called a love feast. And a love feast is what we know today as potluck. The church got together before they had actual church properties, house to house. Then in the Corinthians, when they actually had a church establishment, they would gather in the church for potlucks. What do we do at a potluck? We eat and we fellowship, but what is each person not required to do, but almost kind of assumed they would do? Bring something, right? You take some of yours. Somebody else takes some of yours. Somebody else takes some of yours. And all together, we are eating of the same food. I contribute, you contribute, we all contribute, and we're united eating of the same food. But you know what else the early church did? At the end of the love feast, they would take communion because communion was the apex of unity within the body, Because when I take communion and you take communion, what is our hearts focused on? Not our bills, not anything else. We're focused on the table. What about our souls? Focus on what the Lord has done. What about our bodies? We are taking the actual sacraments together. So we are united as one. Communion is the apex or ought to be the apex of our unity within the body. Now, look at what the Corinthians had done. Go back to our text in chapter eleven, First 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. The church was to be unified, and communion was the climax of our unity. And look at verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that division exists among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, this is the love feast, it is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. What were they doing at the love feast? Those who had a lot brought really good food, maybe lobster tail, maybe filet mignon, but they didn't share it. They ate it in front of even the people in the church who were hungry. So you had hungry, poor people in the church just watching the rich eating their really good food. And you had others bringing bottles of wine, but they weren't doing it in in the mindset of communion. They were doing it to get drunk. So you had gluttonous drunkards throughout the whole church, and you had people who had nothing starving. And that caused factions and disunity and disharmony amongst the church. This is the central focus that Paul is talking about when he's talking about taking communion in an unworthy manner. We ought to be one body, one soul, one mind, baptized in one name through one spirit for one glory, God's. And the communion of the Corinthian church had completely whored that out. And they completely defiled the Lord's table. And it became a disharmony amongst the body. Number two, what does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? We said it earlier. I believe it was, I think it was Monique. What does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? Number two, an unrepentant manner. Does anybody know the difference between a sin and a transgression? So Greg said, a sin is done involuntary, whereas a transgression is done voluntary, and he's right. A transgression is sin, and sin may not be a transgression. So if you think of our judicial law, we have first-degree premeditated murder, and then we have manslaughter. Both of those things killed a human being, only what's the difference between the two? The penalty, but what about the actual act? What separates first-degree premeditated murder to, let's say, manslaughter, intention, desire. It's the same exact thing when it comes to sin. See, I can sin against God and not even know it, and I'm violating God's command, and I'm guilty before God, and I don't even know. And then I have transgressions where it says, I know this is wrong. I know this not to be edifying. I know this not to be the truth. I know God is not pleased in these actions, and yet I'm going to do it anyway. That is the unrepentant heart, which says I am going to rebel and transgress against God, and I'm not going to change. The the meaning of repentance means a change of mind, and it's an actual boating term, and it means to turn the boat 180. So if I'm going north, what does repentance mean? I'm heading south. I've now changed my mind. I've now seen the truth. I now accept the truth, and where my mind goes, what happens to my actions? They eventually follow, right? Whatever you think ultimately comes to pass in your life. And so I turn my mind and then I turn my actions. That's repentance. An unrepentant heart says, I'm not changing my mind on this matter, even though I know it to be sinful. One of the biggest areas within the church here in 2023 that I have noticed of both male and female is the area of pornography. That to me is one of the biggest most glaring issues within the body where men and women know, I know that this is evil. This is wrong. It enslaves the people who are in the industry. It enslaves me. It's like a dog returning back to its vomit. I feel horrible. I feel guilty. I feel disgusting, but I'm going to go back on it. And it's just this crazy cycle over and over and over again. That is an unrepentant heart. That is seeing evil, doing evil, knowing evil, and not turning from evil. That is a manner unworthy of the Lord's table. If you have sin in your life, unrepentant, refusing to change, and you still continue observing the sacraments. It's an unworthy manner, and you're held liable before the Lord for the body and the blood. And that was happening at the Corinthian church. Flip over to chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that there's fornication in the body, sexual fornication. And instead of rebuking it, they were boasting in it. And so in verse 6, we pick up. Your boasting is not good. Do you know, not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as in fact you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Passover night happens, and then what happens the next seven days? What's the next feast in the Jewish calendar? The feast of unleavened bread. Now, Passover is that time when God redeems his people by the blood of the Lamb Sin is leaven. So unleavened bread is a time of not sinning. It's the idea of Passover being our justification, getting right with God, and then the unleavened bread being sanctification. Our life and our walk as we are becoming more and more mature in Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying? You have died to your sins. Therefore walk in a worthy manner. Walk in a way that is not sinful. Now look at what the Corinthians had done in verse 11 through 13. But actually I wrote to you to not associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What do you think the eating refers to? The love feast, which culminates in what? Communion or Passover. He's saying the so-called Christian who says, I love the Lord, but disobeys the Lord. The so-called Christian that says, glory, glory, hallelujah, but their life is a complete train wreck. Do not even share communion with that person. Do not even break bread in these love feasts with one another. Why? Look at verse 12 and 13. For what? Have I to do with judging outsiders? Do not judge. Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Now what about those who are inside the church? Remove the wicked man from amongst yourselves. Paul is saying, look, the world, God's going to judge them. That's not our job to be out there throwing rocks at them and saying, hey, we can't break bread with you. We already know they're lost. But when it comes to those who claim they're saved and they're living in a life of sin, don't hold communion. Don't hold these love feasts with them. Have them repent, judge them, call them to righteousness, call them to repentance. And if they don't, then what are we to do as a church? You you cannot fellowship here. Why? A little leaven does what? leavens the whole lump. A little bit of cancer spreads to the whole body. A little bit of sin destroys that person's life and ultimately spreads to the entire community. So communion, taking it in an unworthy manner, is having an unrepentant heart, saying my heart is not right with God, but I refuse to change. Here's the third thing, an irreverent heart. Does anybody know what irreverent means? Exactly. It's the opposite of reverent or to revere, which means what? (laughs) Gold star. What does it mean to revere something or to hold God in reverence? Highest honor, right? He is so holy. And so even when in the Old Testament people would approach him, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. That was what it means to revere God, to be in awe of him, to understand his position and his holiness, and then to understand my position and my sinfulness. And so we revere God. We are in awe of God. We seek to be holy with God. What happens? What does it mean then to be irreverent? Instead of honoring God, what do we do? Dishonor God. We disrespect him. So holding the table in reverence, we're gonna see in verse 28, means to examine. To hold the table in irreverence means we simply don't care. And I think this is the sin that captures most of the church. It's this idea where I'm just lukewarm. Oh, can this preacher stop talking? He's already been going for 45 minutes. The stomach growls and we say, man, I just want to get out of here. Then the communion comes and says, I don't really care, but everybody else is doing it. And I don't want to look like a weirdo and not take it. So I'm just going to take it anyway. It's this idea of not remembering the Lord, not allowing it to hit the heart, not taking what we know to be true and letting it sink in 18 inches, but just going through the motions. If you look at chapter 11 and verse 20, I'll read it to you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. When they gathered at the love feast, they just wanted to get drunk and they wanted to eat good food. And they wanted to live and laugh and love. Very much what the world does. But why they didn't gather was for the Lord's Supper. They just didn't revere the Lord enough. And that is taking the cup and the bread in an unworthy manner. So now verse 28, how do we get around being liable for the body and the blood? Verse 28, the way to preparation is through examination. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. The Greek word to examine means to test thoroughly. It means to test critically. It means to seek to prove something to be genuine. And it's almost always tied to gold. When you put gold into a fire, all the dross comes to the top. All the, the, the bad stuff that's not gold. All the stuff that is impure comes to the top and it's scraped away. And then a stamp is put on it, 24 karat, genuine. 24 karat, pure. This has been tested by the fire, and it has been proven to be genuine and good. That is how we examine our walks. We put it through the fire. We actually test it, and we see if it is true or if it is false. Now, the two areas that we're examining and testing, that we're putting into the fire, is one, faith, and two, repentance. Now, when it comes to faith, this deals with our position. Do I know who I am? And do I know who God is? And do I know what the Lord has done for me? For example, testing your faith. Am I a sinner or am I not a sinner? Was I right or wrong, good or evil before God? The Bible says we were conceived in sin, we were at enmity with God, we are at war with God, there are none who do good, there are none who do righteous, all have gone astray, everybody's tongues was like that of an asp. The Bible paints humanity in a very dark picture, that the natural man can do nothing to please the living God. When we test our faith, do we actually believe that? Or do we say, I'm a pretty good person? I've helped that lady cross the street last week. You know, I I went and I shoveled snow for my neighbor. I'm a pretty good person. I, I don't think I fall into that whole sinner's camp. We test our faith. Do we believe that there is nothing I can do to get right before a holy God outside of Christ? Some people say, well, if my good outweigh my bad deeds, I'll get to heaven. I've never stolen, cheated on my taxes, cheated on my wife. I'm a good person. I do good things. Do my good deeds outweigh my bad? Or do we say there's nothing I can do outside of Christ? He and he alone is my source of redemption. That is testing your faith. Do you believe that Christ and Christ alone, his blood, his body, his ascension and resurrection is good for my salvation? Or do I believe there is another means? This is what it means to test our faith, to examine our hearts. And then because of that, we move to now the practice of our life. Has that truth impacted me in such a way that I'm actually living a life of repentance? Because faith without works is dead. It's D-O-A, dead on arrival. Only a faith that is working is a faith that is alive. Faith without works is dead. And works is that area of glorifying God and turning away from sin. Turning away from the old nature. Doing what God approves and not what we approve. Doing the Lord's will and not our own will. Building God's kingdom and not building our own kingdom. So both of those things intrinsically must be tried by the fire and said, do I know theologically the truth that who I used to be was at enmity and war with God and truly a child of Satan, but now I am a child of God through Christ. And because of that, I'm an heir of God, a co-heir of Christ, that even though I may die to this body, I will be present with the Lord forever that I am a child of God whom he loves and he demonstrated that love for me on the cross. Do I believe that? And then does my life prove that through what I do? That's examination. That is the proper way to go before the Lord's table and try and test both our theology and the practicality of our life. And we see similarly to that in a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18. Jesus told the parable in Luke eighteen nine, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. Notice he wasn't praying to God. Who was he praying to? Himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was not even unwilling, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you that this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. What does it mean to examine yourself? It means to humble yourself before the Lord, to humble yourself before positionally who he claims you to be and then actually humble yourself in your actions so that you are repenting of your evil deeds and i do it you do it we are all called to do that because we all fail each and every day but where grace where sin abounds what does grace do abounds much more And that's the purpose of the Lord's table is it's not only a dark thing, but it's a beacon of light. So what happens in verse 29 through 34 for those who refuse to examine their hearts and continue taking the unworthy manner at the Lord's table? Verse 29 through 34. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So we talk about this judgment. We talk about being liable for the body and the blood. What does this judgment mean? It does not mean eternal condemnation. It does not mean everlasting hell. That word is called kata, K-A-T-A, kerma. And that's the word in verse 32, so that we will not be condemned, kada kerma, along with the world. The word judged is the word kerma, K-I-R-M-A. The difference, one is temporal, the other is eternal. Why are we not condemned? Romans 8.1, what does it say? Therefore, there is now no, karma, no condemnation to whom? Those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying you're liable for temporary judgment before the Lord. In other words, look at verse 32. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. This is not an eternal damnation where God blots your name from the Lamb's book of life. It's not that at all. It's a disciplining of the Lord. When you're irreverent, when you're unrepentant, when you're disharmonious before the table, taking it in an unworthy manner, God, not because he hates you, but because he loves you, will judge you, and he will discipline you. Now look at Hebrews 12. And parents, you'll get this. Hebrews twelve five. And you have forgotten to exhortation, which is addressed to you as sons. So you are God's children. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So parents, if you really love your children, you will discipline your children. Because if you spare the rod, you will do what? Spoil the child. And the word spoil doesn't mean they get a whole bunch of Christmas gifts. And they're spoiled with things. It means they literally rot. They literally rot because their life is marred with sin. And so a loving parent will discipline their children and keep them on the straight and narrow. So that they don't go way off and begin to sin and create a stench in their Lives. If parents really love their children, they discipline their children, not vice versa. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in His holiness." All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, and we can say amen, but sorrowful, and we can say amen. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So what happens when we come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner? God pulls out the rod and he chastens us just like the shepherd may break the legs of the sheep who continue to go astray. Not because that shepherd hates that sheep, but because he loves that sheep and he wants him close. God wants you close. And so God may allow certain events to happen in your life to even attack your physical body to the point that you look up and say, Lord, I'm sorry, and you repent. Now look at this judgment. It seems harsh, but when you look at it from the the lens of eternity, it may not be that harsh. Verse 30. For this reason, many among you are weak. And the reason is they aren't judging themselves, so who has to judge them instead? God. They aren't fully examining themselves, so who has to examine them? God. Who has to prove that their faith is genuine? God. How does he do that? Number one, for this reason many of you are weak, and this is the word to be debil- de debilitated. What is it? Debilitated. This is the same words that were used in the gospels and in Acts when people were paralyzed and they were carried on pallets and laid before the Lord or laid before the apostles to be healed. In the Corinthian church, they had so defiled the Lord's table, God actually brought judgment on some of the members and debilitated their life. Gave them some form of terminal illness or some ailment that could not be uh, healed right away. It sounds uber harsh, but when you think of eternity and you think that we're not talking about the soul, we're talking about the body, it's not that Um, Harsh, And it goes to show you also how high God has elevated the communion table. Some people have debilitating injury or debilitating issues with their life because they dishonor the Lord's table. Now, if you're a Christian and you have some kind of ailments, and we all do, that doesn't necessarily mean, well, I'm guilty before the Lord's table. That may not be that at all. Good people suffer. Job was a good, righteous man, and he suffered greatly. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm dishonoring God in this way, but it can mean that. And so that's something we must examine within ourselves. The second one is sick, and this isn't as harsh. This deals with temporal illnesses. So you get the flu, you get a migraine, you get strep throat, you get all these different things. It could be, just like at the Corinthian church, God judiciously bringing down judgment on some people who took the cup and bread in an unworthy manner. And then the last, and a number, sleep. You know what that Greek word sleep means? Died. God judged them even to the point of physical death. Now here's where Romans 8.28 comes in. All things work together for good. So absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. Even in their disgrace of the table, God blessed them enough to take their life and immediately deliver them into his presence. But even then, it just shows you the power and the strength and the purpose of the Lord's table. So we are called to judge ourselves, examine ourselves, and not so that we can be judged by the Lord. And again, this is not dealing with condemnation. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. Now, in verse 30, it talked about individuals being judged. In verse 34, it's talking about their congregation. Being judged. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So, if taking communion in an unworthy manner can bring physical harm, guess what happens when the person shapes up and gets their mind right and examines and repents and comes in a worthy manner? What then can the communion table become? A place of healing. It can become a place of healing. And for the Christian, the communion table really is the place of healing. And it's a place of peace, as we have peace with God and peace from God. And it's a place of love, as we saw what our Savior has done. And it's a place of goodness, and it's a place of kindness, It's an incredible place, and the Lord says, do this. How often do we do it? Once a month, twice a month, three times a month? As many times, as many times. God, through the Son, wants you to commune with him, and he wants us to be one. As many times as we'd like to do it, he wants to receive us, but he wants us to come on his terms. Amen? So we're going to pray And then we're going to go into a time of self-reflection, also known as examination. And what are we doing when we examine ourselves? We are testing what two things? Our faith and repentance. We are saying, are we in the faith? Okay, God, what am I doing wrong? What do I need to alter? And then commit ourselves practically to doing those things. So uh, in this time, would you bow your heads with me and let's examine ourselves before the Lord. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you, God, that you have been so gracious to us. We thank you, God, that in my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin and sin separates us from God and sin eternally damns us, but you loved us and you chose us, and you died for us, and you sealed us with your spirit for the day of redemption. And we are in the Father's hand, and we are in your hand, and no one can snatch us out. We remember, Lord, your broken body. We remember the lashings that split your back. We remember the crown of thorns that broke your face. We remember the pulled beard and the beating of the face. We remember the clubs. We remember those nine-inch nails that were thrust into your wrists and into your ankles. We remember the mocking and the blasphemies, Lord. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love didn't hold you on that cross or nails didn't hold you on that cross, love did. And so Father, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we thank you. May we examine ourselves in this time so that we can take of communion in a worthy manner. And just know that Jesus paid it all. In Jesus' name. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location time of worship service or even what ministries we offer we encourage you to visit our facebook page at journey community church montana where you can find all that information and more again on behalf of journey community church of montana we thank you for tuning in have a blessed week and we'll see you here next time